Okay, let's talk about these guys. We're going to start with, with Samuel. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. And the setting is around 1050 B.C., give or take a few years. Um, some, of the, some of the sources that I read said that uh, around 1043 B.C. is when the elders of Israel came to Samuel and said, We want a king. We don't want judges anymore. We want a king. Samuel is getting older, although I didn't think he was that old. He's, at that point, he's about 57. So they're looking at that and thinking, well, you know, we don't know how many more years he has. He actually lived to about 90. And so he, uh, he, he, he actually lived longer than Saul. Uh, he, he died just, he didn't live longer than, he, he died one year before Saul did actually who became king and so he did have a nice long life around 90 years old but at about his about 57 the elders said hey you're getting up there your sons are bad (laughs) and we need to do something about this and we don't want another judge there was nobody else on the horizon who was being trained to be a judge or anybody who is who looked like they would be in that position to carry on what Samuel was doing he did have two sons and he made those sons judges in Beersheba but they were not good judges they were corrupt and so the elders looked at the picture and they said there's nobody coming up on the horizon your sons are bad news Uh, we'd like a king and um uh, that really was a pretext for the fact that they were just disobedient in the first place. Uh, the action picks up in 1 Samuel, so if you'd like to keep your thumb in your Bible a little bit, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, and we're going to start in chapter 8. So I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Samuel 8. We're going to pick it up with verses 1 through 9. So this is what we, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old... 57. <laughs> he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was, was Joel, and the name of his second with, was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside, um, but, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them to sh- and show them the ways of the, of the king who will reign over them. And then it goes into his warning that you better be careful what you wish for because it might not be so great. And he does that in the next few verses. And so really the fact that he had corrupt sons was really just a pretext for their disobedience. They wanted to be like everybody else. All the surrounding nations around them had kings, and they, they kind of looked at the picture and said, hey, how come we can't be like, any, like everybody else? And of course the answer is because the Lord didn't want you to be like everybody else. You're to be distinct from everybody else. You do have a king. God is your king. The Lord is your king. You don't need a human king. The Lord uh, uh, will lead you into battle. The Lord will take care of your needs. And you don't need a king, but they, uh, uh, we know that Israel didn't always get it. Often, most of the time, didn't get it. And the fact that there was nobody looming on the horizon to take Samuel's place and he had corrupt sons, it was just a convenient excuse to... Uh, to ask for a king. Uh, they didn't want a theocracy anymore. They wanted to be like everybody else. So Samuel warns them and um, uh, that, that uh, 
Their disobedience would ultimately cause them harm, but they refused to listen. If we skip down in that same chapter to verses 19 and 20, this is what we read. So after his warning, verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, so that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so Samuel said, okay. The Lord said, we'll give you what you want. I couldn't help but think of of Romans chapter 1 when we read that in terms of our current situation that God gave them over to their their lusts and their disobedience. And that's kind of what we see here is God just gave them over to what they wanted. And uh, they paid the price for that. Saul then is introduced in the next chapter, chapter 9. Saul is the son of a, of a farmer named Kish uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a tall, good-looking guy. He's got a promising future ahead on the family farm. Uh, and one day his father sent him out on a, on a mission to find three lost donkeys. And so he went out and looked around the countryside. He had been told that there was a seer, a prophet in the area who might be able to help him. And of course, that was Samuel. Samuel was the prophet that might be able to help him with these donkeys. And so he finds Samuel and says, hey, can you tell me where these donkeys are since you see things? And uh, uh, the Lord had already given Samuel word about a future king in Israel. And that you were to uh, to wait for that king. And, and uh, when Saul came to Samuel, then the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, this is the guy. This is Israel's future king. And so Samuel said to Saul, don't worry about the donkeys. They're fine. You can, you can end your search. They've been found. And by the way, you're going to rule Israel. <laughs> what a shock that would be. You're looking for donkeys, and the guy says, don't worry about them but you are going to be king. You are, you are going to rule Israel. Take a look at 1 Samuel 9, verse 20. 1 Samuel 9, verse 20, we read this. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? In other words, you. You. You're going to be desired in Israel. Is it not for you and for your father's house? In other words, you are going to be the ruler. And his response was, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me this way? You're you're crazy. Do you know who I am? There's no way. There's no way this can happen. And I suppose you could, if you put yourself in that situation, if you were just on a typical errand to find your lost donkeys, maybe to find your lost car keys or whatever, and somebody says, oh, don't worry about those, but by the way, in a couple years, you will be president of the United States. It's like, whoa, (laughs) really? I don't think I run in those circles. (laughs) I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen. And that's sort of what's happening here uh, to, to Saul. And so uh, we, we, we see that uh, interesting prophecy of, of Samuel to Saul. And of course, uh, uh, but Saul didn't say anything about it, kept quiet, which gives us a little bit of his character, just starting to get an inkling into the, the mind of this guy. Said nothing about this at all. As he returned home, uh, his uncle asked, how did it go? Well, got the donkeys, but, you know, everything was fine. If, we, if you flip to 1 Samuel 10 and look at 1 Samuel 10, verse 16, uh, Saul is talking to his uncle, and Saul said to his uncle, when this uncle said uh, right before that, you know, what, how, how did it go? And Saul said to his uncle, Well, he, Samuel told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom that he would be king, didn't say a thing. Kept his mouth shut. You know, he, I guess we could say, well, he probably thought the guy was crazy anyway. But at that point, uh, soon after that, Samuel called all the tribes together. They had the elders of all the tribes that said, we want a king. And so the time had come to then uh, appoint this king and call the king. 
So Samuel called all the tribes together to choose this king, and they were going to do this by lot, by just casting lots, by drawing straws. We would choose the next king. And of course, the Lord had already orchestrated all of this and already told Samuel, this is who it's going to be. So it's not going to be a surprise to Samuel. So Samuel calls them all together to choose the king. And so first they choose the tribe, and he draws Benjamin. The king will come from the tribe of Benjamin. And so I imagine if this was like a political convention, there would be you know a lot of cheering at the in the tribe of Benjamin of the of the Benjaminites. And then all the in the tribe they were divided into clans. And so next they would draw the clan that the person would come from. And they they and Samuel drew the lot of the Matrites. That was Saul's clan. And next they would draw a lot that would be the actual man from that clan. And they drew Saul's name, the next king of Israel. And, of course, everybody's probably going wild. Where is he? You know, you know, put him up on a pedestal and let's see this guy. And he's hiding. <laughs> he's hiding in, in the scriptures. says hiding among the baggage somewhere. And he's just trying to get out of, out of sight. He doesn't, you know, he's probably scared to death. What in the world is going on? And couldn't be found. <laughs> From his outward appearance, remember, he's kind of a tall, good-looking guy. You'd think that, man, this is... Um, ideal choice but uh, we, we, we again see some of his character flaws already coming through um, this uh, was the beginning of a 40 year reign for, for Saul but it would be marked more by failure than it would be success he hadn't told anybody of, of, of Samuel's prophecy tried to hide when he was named king he was, a, he was insecure he was a fearful guy he was paranoid he was inept and, and those became the hallmarks of his rule for 40 years. Saul did have a son, Jonathan. Jonathan was a teenager at this time, probably in his mid-teens, maybe late teens, when his father was made king. And I'm sure he was aware of his father's shortcomings, having lived with the guy. And he probably wondered, you know, what's going to happen <laughs> with my dad in this situation? And, of course, he would, uh, he would find out soon enough. But, uh, but Jonathan was a man who would lead well. He was a good leader. And, of course, we know that the Lord put Jonathan in that place providentially when David comes into the scene. So we know exactly why Jonathan is there. We know ex- exactly why Jonathan is a man of good character. Israel had a very weak king but a very strong prince in, in Jonathan. We're introduced to Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 13. So if you flip a couple pages over to, to 1 Samuel 13, in, in verse uh, 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel uh, for an army. So he was putting his army together. And he chose 3,000 men. Uh, 2,000 were with Saul and... Uh, a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah uh, in the land of Benjamin. So he put his son in charge of a third of the troops. So Saul's probably in his late, I mean, Jonathan is probably in his late teens to early 20s, and he's in charge of a thousand men. And so already you see that uh, he's a trustworthy guy for Saul. Of course, we don't know, we don't know the judgment. Of, of course, we know Saul's judgment. And so I suppose this could be questioned. But Jonathan proves himself immediately because in a battle with the Philistines, uh, Jonathan just wipes them up and does a great job with his thousand men. And so he's immediately proven as a good leader, uh, a fearless leader, uh, a successful leader, and uh, uh, proves himself immediately uh, going forward. Now, the, as at having kind of wiped the floor with the Philistines with his thousand men and this was at uh, this was at a town called uh, Jeba and he captured it he captured that area uh, this was an Im- important battle because it, it proved really proved Jonathan but the Philistines came back with a vengeance if uh, if you read a couple of verses down to verse 5 and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots 6,000 horsemen and troops 
uh, like the sand of the seashore in the multitude. Uh, if you read the footnote there, they might uh, your Bible might say that 30,000 is probably a mistake by the scribe who was writing here. And kind of an interesting little footnote that, uh, that in, in my version, they leave it there, but, uh, but just let you know that it probably wasn't 30,000 because it doesn't match up with the fact that they had only 6,000 horsemen. Probably a clerical error. It was probably more like 3,000. But it was a bunch. 6,000 horsemen... That's twice, as, twice the number of men that Saul had in his army. And so you, we, we have a, um, a mismatch here to begin with. Okay, now I've got a picture. And so Josh is scurrying to the picture of, of the battle scene here. And so here you see, a, you, you kind of get a lay of the land. And where it says Jeba, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know if it's Giba, Jeba, whatever. But it's, it's uh, see, I'm a Herigur, and so I would say... Giba, if I if I really wanted to use how my name is pronounced, but somebody else might who knows the language better might say no, it's Giba. Learn how to pronounce those things. So you can pick you can pick one, or somebody wants to correct me right now. I don't see anybody raising their hand. Okay, all right, I'm going to say Giba. And so that's where that's where um, Jonathan um, made his uh, won his battle. And then you had the you had the Philistines move over to uh, to Mishmash over on the other side, and that's where they were camped at that point. And so, and then you have this big pass that, uh, between them that narrows down to some pretty sharp cliffs, the Bozes and the Sena cliffs. I've got a. I know there are a couple of you in here that have been to Ibex, and uh, anybody here that's been to Ibex, do you remember that the, that site at all? Does uh, I know. David, you were there. Anybody remember that at all? No? Yep. So that, that I know sometimes they take the Ibexers to, the, to that area uh, to see that site. So the Philistines, being defeated at Jeba, they, they muster this huge army of 6,000 horsemen and troops. And you can just leave that up there for a minute, Josh. Um, twice the size of, of Saul's army. Um, Saul's army, they're going nuts. They're, they're looking at all these guys amassing on the, on the hillside across from them over at Mishmash, and they're looking at that and going, uh-oh, <laughs> there's a bunch of guys over there. And the, the, the Israel troops are in a major panic. They start deserting. They're hiding in caves. They're digging holes to cover themselves in. They say, I don't want any part of this. And Saul is left with 600 guys. He goes from 3,000 to 600. Not a good thing. Now, Saul had been instructed back in chapter 10. If you were to go back to chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel had instructed Saul to wait for him. Wait for me, and when I get there, we will offer a sacrifice to the Lord that the Lord would go before us, that we would be successful in this battle against the Philistines. But wait for me. And so Saul is to wait, wait for Samuel. But, Sam, but Saul gets impatient. The seventh day comes, doesn't see any sign of, uh, of Samuel, and he's kind of like, man, everybody's leaving. The Philistines are getting bigger and stronger across the other side. You know, what am I supposed to do? And he says, I'm just going to make the sacrifice anyway. And so he's impatient. And, he become, and he's disobedient then at this point. And rather than waiting, like Samuel said, the Lord's judge Samuel. And that guy you obey. That's the Lord's word. But he disobeyed and he made a sacrifice anyway without Samuel. So he displayed a lack of faith, of faith poor leadership. He didn't trust in the Lord, didn't wait. And he made the sacrifice. When Samuel finally got there, um, Samuel confronted him and said, why did you do this? Why didn't you wait? What's the problem? And uh, a, uh, one of the character flaws of Saul was that it was never his fault. Ever. It was always somebody else. They did this. They did this. They did this. He was king of blame shifting. It was anybody but him. Confronted it's like, well, Samuel, you were late. Of course, guess what? 
he was late on purpose to test his faith. Samuel, you were late. It's your fault. The men were deserting. It's their fault. The Philistines are amassing against us. It's their fault. He had reason after reason after reason to make that sacrifice. And it was everybody else's fault except his. And we see here that the scripture directs that the Lord says then, you know, Saul, I'm done with you. Take a look at chapter 13, verse 14. And actually, um, since I'm looking at 13, I'll read 13 also. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You blew it. You missed a golden opportunity. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And we know that's David. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I'm done with you. Your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. You were tested. You failed the test. Your days are numbered. There will be another king. And God's judgment wasn't just on Saul, but it was on his family. The king wouldn't come from Saul's lineage. Jonathan would not be king. Jonathan would have been in line to be king, but Jonathan would not be king. Uh, A completely different line would be chosen. Of course, that's the lineage of David. Now, I suppose Jonathan could have said, well, hey, I'm out. I'm going to go back to the farm. You know, I I was in line to be king, and now I'm in line to be nothing. So I'm out of here. But he didn't do that. He stayed. He was loyal to the Lord. Probably more so than his father, he was loyal to the Lord. And his response was of a man who had faith, even in these dire circumstances of his father's sin. And an example of of Jonathan's courage and faith is found as we continue to examine this conflict between Israel and, and the Philistines. Saul had disobeyed the Lord by offering the sacrifice, and his men were deserting. The Philistines were, were amassing against him. And uh, in contrast to the weak faith of Saul, Jonathan embarks on basically what could only be characterized as a suicide mission. He's going to confront the Philistine garrison there at Mishmash with only his armor bearer at his side. And um, let's see if I know how to advance pictures. No. Yes, I'm going to do that one. So he's going to go to, the, there's a, this ravine, and you can see this uh, right in here, this deep ravine between where, over here, Jeba, where Jonathan is, and over here where the Philistines are. And this, this kind of shows a battle map here that you've got Jonathan here, and you've got the Philistines up here at Mishmash. Jonathan's down here. Saul's over here at, at Gibeah, kind of sitting under a pomegranate tree, just contemplating his uh, pomegranate, wondering what to do. And, uh, <laughs> and Jonathan says, there's this, he says, I'm going to go over there and confront these guys at Mishmash. And there's this, this, this gap, this chasm in between steep cliffs and this is a picture of uh, the steep cliffs in between uh, the two sites. And basically, Jonathan is going to, with his armor bearer, climb up these cliffs and confront the Philistines. He's going to climb up these steep cliffs, these steep, craggy cliffs, and confront the Philistines on the other side. And basically, the, the, the attitude is, you know what? If the Lord is with us, we're fine. (laughs) If the Lord is with us, we're going to be fine. He didn't tell his dad, Saul, he didn't tell his dad about the plan. He and his armor bearer went to this this deep chasm uh, between Jeba and Mishmash. There there were very steep cliffs. On one side, it was called Bozes, which means slippery. On the other one side, uh, it was called Senna, which means thorny. So they're, they're climbing up these these thorny, slippery cliffs 
to confront the Philistines and, uh, and, and hopefully win the battle with two guys. It was a fool's errand. There's just, you know, common sense would say, this is crazy. But Jonathan had faith, he had courage, and it's displayed in these words to his armor bearer. If you look at uh, chapter 14, verse 6, turn a page over to chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. If the Lord is in it, two of us is enough. If the Lord is going to win this battle, it doesn't matter if it's a lot or two. Let's go. And so they went. Jonathan was confident that the Lord uh, would fight for them, even if it was only two of them. And they scaled the cliffs. They were met by the Philistines and immediately killed 20 of the men. They get up the cliff. They've got, they've got a party there waiting for them. <laughs> and, they, and they killed 20 guys immediately, 20 Philistines. The Lord providentially sends an earthquake at the same time. The Philistines are in total disarray. They can't believe what's happening. And they start scattering. They wonder what in the world is going on. And they are in utter distress over this. Immediately 20 guys are lost. The earth is going crazy. They got to get out of there. And so they start retreating. They start moving out. Meanwhile, Saul's troops over at Jeba. They look across the chasm and they say, hey, something's going on over there. Those guys are retreating. They're not coming towards us. They're going home. What is going on? Let's go get them. And so Saul's men start pursuing the fleeing Philistines and chasing them back home and as they catch up to and defeating them and killing Philistines along the way. So the Philistines are in retreat. Um, Jonathan's pretty much already won the battle and they're just chasing him home Uh, so while Saul was sitting under that pomegranate tree wondering what to do um, considering God's disapproval of his sacrifice uh, and wondering about these approaching enemies and wondering what am I going to do about all these deserting troops Jonathan was in action he did something even if it was only two guys he went and he did something He confronted the Philistines, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord helped him kill 20 guys, create an earthquake, sent the Philistines running. And then Saul finally took some initiative. Then he said, okay, guys, let's go. And then they take take up the battle. It's interesting to see Saul's point of view on this, on how to defeat the Philistines. In in, uh, chapter 14, verse 24, Here's how Saul, here, here, was, here was Saul's plan of action. We have Jonathan's plan of action, which was, hey, let's go do something. Saul's plan of action was, verse 24, chapter 14. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. In other words, nobody eats until we have victory. Until we win, nobody has a meal. That was his plan. (laughs) Now, I was trying to remember, I didn't look this up, and I was trying to remember, there was a very famous uh, um, military guy who said that an army marches on his stomach. I think it was Napoleon. Does anybody agree with that? I see Sam shaking his head yes, so I think I'm right. So I think it was Napoleon that I... Nope. You agree? Um, okay I think it was Napoleon that said an army marches on its stomach if it wasn't Napoleon it was George Washington and now I'm making stuff up but somebody said that (laughs) an army marches on its stomach Saul did not get that memo (laughs) he did not get the memo and I don't know what he was thinking the idea was that this would be a this would be incentive to to have the guys stay that was the idea is this will be a this will be a good way to have the guys not desert. This will be kind of a religious fast. Do this for the Lord. Don't eat until 
We've won the battle until the Lord has taken us through this battle. Don't eat. And so he was, he was hoping that, uh, that that would be the, 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 the case, but uh, the result was they were famished. They were, they, were, they were chasing the Philistines and just kind of dying off at the same time. Luckily, the Philistines were so afraid that uh, they didn't know that if they probably would have turned on the Israelites, they probably could have, could have wiped the floor with the Israelites because they were so hungry. But they, uh, but they didn't know. Uh, the, if the Lord hadn't been with Jonathan, Saul's men probably would have been defeated because of their weakness. And on top of that, and, and we can probably get rid of the slides now. And on top of that, when the battle was finally done, the men are so hungry, they're so famished, that they're so anxious to eat, they don't take the time to properly prepare the meat. They kill some of the the uh, the um, animals that they've captured along the way, and rather than properly preparing the food, they eat meat mixed with blood, which is a violation of God's law. You don't eat meat mixed with blood. But they did. They were so hungry, they said, I don't care, give me that stuff. And they ate, and they sinned. And basically they sinned because of Saul's ignorance or stupidity of keeping these men from food. They'd gorge themselves. And then Saul, in chapter 14, verse 37, Saul sought divine guidance for what to do next with the Philistines. Should I con- he wanted to continue chasing them. Should I continue chasing these guys? What should I do next, Lord? And the Lord didn't answer. And Saul was very concerned about this. Lord, why aren't you answering me? What do I do next? But the Lord didn't respond. And he figured, okay, somebody is in sin here. Somebody in the army sinned, and that's why I'm not getting direction from the Lord. Somebody sinned. Somebody broke my oath of not eating. Somebody did the wrong thing. And so he went on a hunt to see who sinned. And of course, the answer was, Saul, you did. You did by making your men take this boneheaded oath of not eating. He was the sinner. Well, remember that Jonathan had left on this covert, and his armor bearer had left on this covert mission. Nobody knew about that they were going. Nobody knew about that. Saul didn't know about it. When Saul put the ban on eating, Jonathan knew nothing about it. And so when Jonathan is, is... moving along, chasing the Philistines also, he comes to an area where there's some honey. And they're hungry, and so they take their spear, and they dip it in the honey, and they take some. And it's good, and it refreshes them. But guess what? They just broke the oath. They just broke what the oath that Saul had. Of course, they didn't know because they weren't there, some of the men caught up with them and told them, hey, by the way, you know you're not supposed to do that. Your dad said, no, eating. And they had eaten. So when Saul learned about this, and even before that, he, he, he said, you know what? Anybody who eats, you're going to die. <laughs> Further motivation. Isn't that great motivation? You eat, you're going to die. And so uh, uh, when, he, when the Lord doesn't answer him, somebody sins, even if it's my son, that person's going to die. Well, guess what? He finds out that it is indeed Jonathan. It is indeed Jonathan who ate the honey. And so right, right away he said, well, Jonathan, wish it were me, but it's you, and you're going to die because you broke the oath. Even if you were ignorant, even though you didn't know about it, you sinned, you caused the Lord not to answer me, and you're going to die. And so the... Uh, and so they're about to pronounce sentence. And if you look at uh, the end of, ch- uh, towards the end of chapter, well, actually in verse 44 of chapter 14, verse 44 of chapter 14, Saul said, God, do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, talking to Jonathan. And then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? In other words, are you kidding? Do you know what this guy just did? And you're going to kill him? Are you an idiot? This is nuts. Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair on his head 
Not one hair on his head will fall to the ground, for he has worked with God today. He, the Lord, is with him. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. I don't know what that means. You know, I don't know what the purchase was. You know, how did they do that? Um, I'm, that's a question in my mind. He was ransomed somehow. There was some sort of payment for his life to Saul, and he was saved. And then Saul went up from pursuing it, the Philistines, it says, and the Philistines continued on to their own place. And so we, we see that Jonathan is saved here. Well, Saul stayed on the scene for several more years. He was, uh, he was given notice again that his days were numbered after a battle with the Amalekites. Um, in the battle with the Amalekites, Saul was told... Saul was told with the battle with the Amalekites, no one lives. Nobody. Nobody gets away from this battle. If they're an Amalekite, they must die, period. Nobody gets away. As a matter of fact, all livestock must also be destroyed. These guys have to be utterly wiped from the face of the earth. Every man, woman, and child, and any of their animals, they've got to be gone. Well, guess what? He doesn't do it. He keeps the best livestock, says it's for his troops. He lets the king, King Agag, live. And so he's disobedient again to the word of the Lord. And, he, and, and he's confronted by Samuel. Samuel confronts Saul and said, What are you doing? What have you done? You were supposed to kill everybody and you're supposed to kill all their animals. What's that I hear? I hear sheep bleeding in the background and I hear animal noises. Where, what's going on? What, what have you done? Well, guess what Saul does? Immediately goes into blame shift. It's not my fault. The people did it. They, they let the animals live. Somebody else did it. It wasn't my fault. It was them. Typical Saul. It was never his fault. He blamed the disobedience on the people. It, uh, he, he would say, hey, I'll use these sacrifices to the Lord. It's going to be for the Lord. It'll be okay, don't worry. Blame shift. But we read some words that cut deep into Saul's weak excuses. And really, this is a, a, a scripture that I think that, um, is something that affects all of us as we, uh, as we consider our own lives. Take a look at chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. And read what, the, what Samuel said to Saul about this disobedience. Samuel 15:22 And Samuel said, "Has the Lord as great has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity." And idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Again, he gives confirmation to Saul. Your days are numbered. You're done. You do all these things, but you won't obey. You say that you're sacrificing and you're doing all these wonderful things for the Lord, but you don't obey. Obey me. Do what I say. You can sacrifice all day, but if you're in disobedience, it means nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's a strong message to us in our own lives in terms of our obedience. Samuel then asked that King Agag be brought in after Saul cried a little bit. And, he, uh, and Samuel says, Bring in that king that you let live. King Agag, Agag is brought in. Saul takes a sword and hacks him to pieces. Bloody mess, I'm sure. A graphic picture of the Lord's judgment and wrath against sin. That's exactly what that is a picture of. A picture of judgment and wrath against sin. And that's what the Lord wants us to do with our sin. Hack it to pieces. Get rid of it. The contrast between Saul and Jonathan grew even more pronounced over time. We have Saul, who was a fearful, indecisive, reactionary, disobedient, proud, heavy-handed leader. 
Jonathan was a guy who took initiative, he showed courage, he acted humbly, he was purposeful in what he did, he displayed a strong confidence in the Lord, he was obedient. Uh, There was a huge difference between these two guys, between his dad, Jonathan, and Saul. And this difference would become even more pronounced with the entrance of David onto the scene. And as Samuel grieved over Saul's disobedience, and he grieved that Israel had this rebellious, unrepentant king, he was giving instructions to Samuel to anoint a replacement, and that replacement, of course, is David. And David was the youngest of eight brothers. He was physically unimpressive. He was this little scrawny shepherd boy. Uh, He was a really good musician, and that's how he got into... uh, uh, to know Samuel uh, or Saul and um, and Jonathan was because of his his musical skills. When um, Saul had been tormented by a harmful spirit, the Lord had actually sent a spirit to torment Saul. And so Saul said, "Somebody do something about this. Well, maybe maybe music will soothe you." And so we know a good music, musician over in Bethlehem, David. So they called for David, and he came in and played his harp. He played his harp for, for uh, Saul to soothe this spirit that was tormenting him, and, and Saul liked it. It was good. Not too soon after that, the Philistine Goliath began to torment Israel and torment Saul, and, and David said, hey, I'm going to go get that guy. And so he, he does. You know the story of David and Goliath. David wins. <laughs> Grabs some rocks out of the, out of the brook, takes him in a sling, hits the guy in the forehead, dead. Cuts his head off and say, here you go, Saul. Done. Done deal. And it's about that time that we see a very, very strong friendship between Jonathan and David after this event. This event really shows that these two guys were cut from the same cloth. Remember Jonathan's courage in confronting a Philistine camp, an entire garrison, with just his armor bearer at his side, and he kills 20 guys. The Lord sends an earthquake, and he sends him running. And then here you see David, without any armor at all, just five rocks, and he defeats Goliath. These guys are cut from the same cloth. Their, their, their statement is, trust the Lord. <laughs> trust the Lord. And as Jonathan had said before that, the Lord will save by many or by few. And if by few and it's only me, so be it. That's what the Lord will do. So these guys became fast friends. In 1 Samuel 18, uh, verse 1, if you flip over to there, we see uh, a picture of their friendship. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. They had a deep love and commitment to each other. It's the kind of friendship that you you long for between any two people. They had a loyalty and a devotion uh, for each other. After David's victory over Goliath, he not only... Uh, gained a good friend. He also uh, gained a position of leadership. David uh, gained a position of leadership in the army. He remained a musician in the court. He was married to Saul's daughter, Michael. And so Jonathan, he and Jonathan were brothers-in-law at that point. David grew immensely popular with the people of Israel, which was a thorn in Saul's uh, side. Saul grew fearful. He was threatened by David. He saw David as a rival. Saul knew that his days were numbered. He knew his kingdom was cursed. And he probably knew at this point, uh, if not too soon after, that, that David was the guy. And so David must die. I need, to, I need to do anything I can to save my kingdom. I must kill David. This guy is a rival and I need to get rid of him. And so he sought to murder David. And of course, the Lord providentially placed Jonathan in the way to spare David's life and to keep, keep Saul from David. And we, we see um, uh, one of the more interesting stories is when uh, Jonathan goes to David and says, my dad's going to kill you. You can't come here. 
you've got to leave. And David can't believe it. He said, there's no way. You're kidding me. Your dad wants to kill me? That's crazy. And so they make a plan. And they say, okay, um, there's going to be a dinner, and you're supposed to be there, and we'll see if my dad, how my dad reacts when you're not there. And, of course, David doesn't show up, and Saul just flips out. He said, he just goes nuts. And he actually throws a spear at Jonathan and narrowly misses him. He almost killed his son over this. He was in a rage because he wanted David there so he could kill him. And so Jonathan and David had devised a, a little plan after that. I'll give you a signal for, why, for, you'll, for you to know if it's safe or not. And the signal was, I'm going to go shoot some arrows. And uh, as I shoot this arrow... If you hear the question that I'm going to ask of, he had a little boy with him, and the boy was to gather up all the arrows. And so the boy's gathering up all the arrows, and he, and he shouts out to the boy, Is not the arrow beyond you? And that's the signal. If David hears that, Is not the arrow beyond you? That's David's signal that, oh, it's not good. That was the question that was going to be posed. If you hear that question, you need to run for your life because Saul wants to kill you. And so they... they followed their plan Um, David knew that he was then a fugitive he could never go back to the palace he had to run and he was running for his life until Saul was finally killed until Saul finally died as they as they met in that field where they were where Jonathan was shooting the arrows they met and Jonathan's parting words to David displayed the depths of their love and loyalty to each other Jonathan said, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. They loved each other. And they knew that they had a bond in the Lord. Well, Jonathan could have been just like his dad. He could have said, I want to be king. Let's kill this guy. But he didn't. He always affirmed to David that David would someday be king. He willingly gave up his claim to the throne. He understood that God had chosen David, not him. And he didn't have any resentment. He had a strong affection for David. And while Saul desperately tried to retain the throne for himself and for his son, Jonathan happily offered it to David. He knew that David was God's choice. He had no problem with that. He was a mighty warrior. He was a noble prince. He was a friend. But he had unwavering faith in the Lord, which set him apart and made him a hero. He, ex- he accepted his non-kingly role with grace, and he embraced it. Now, Saul and Jonathan and two of his brothers were ultimately killed in a battle with, guess who, the Philistines. Saul, Jonathan, two of the brothers killed in a battle with the Philistines. David was deeply grieved by this loss, and his devotion to Jonathan continued even after this death. Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth. It's a great name. I wonder if I could talk Karen and Bobby into naming their first Mephibosheth. Is that a, that's a boy's name. Do we know if it's a boy yet? We don't know that yet, do we? Mephibosheth. I don't think they're going to do that. Well, at the, at, the, at the death of Saul and Jonathan, the nanny who was taking care of Mephibosheth was fleeing because she thought the Philistines might come after this son. And so she was fleeing for her life and carrying this little boy. He's only about five years old. And she trips and falls and drops the boy, and he's crippled permanently. He'll, he, he could never walk. Crippled permanently. And David sought out this boy, and he welcomed him to the palace of it as if this boy were one of his own sons. He invited him to dine at the royal table. He made sure that his grandfather Saul's land was deeded to this boy and that all the servants who had worked for Saul would work for this little boy and this young man as he grew up. That he would have all those things. David made sure that the covenant that he made with Jonathan would be intact to that extent. That Jonathan would live on through that, through his son. Jonathan's, or David's rather, David's kindness that's demonstrated here was really an analogy of God's love for us, of God's love for sinners. 
David took all the initiative. He's the one that sought out this boy. The boy didn't seek him out. David sought out this boy. He sought him out and he welcomed him to the palace. He welcomed this boy even though he was the grandson of a man who wanted to kill him. Mephibosheth could do nothing to repay David. He couldn't offer David any significant service at all. He was crippled. But David brought him into his family. He invited him to his table. He granted him an inheritance of land to which he was not even legally entitled. And an excellent reminder, this is an excellent reminder of our salvation and our own standing with the Lord. We're like a Mephibosheth. We have nothing to offer, and yet the Lord welcomes us to his table. And another excellent challenge as we consider our work, our work for the Lord, is found in those words of Jonathan's when he said, nothing restrains us as he's climbing those craggy cliffs and it's going to challenge the Philistines. And he says to his armor bearer, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Trust the Lord, whether you're in the company of many or few, if you're all by yourself and things look bad, you still do what Jonathan did. You become a man of action. You become a woman of action. And you trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the message here of of these men, uh, the the, the wonderful relationship that we we see between Jonathan and David and and, uh, the actions that that they took place and that they, they were not timid. They were men of faith. They didn't just stop and watch and wait and wonder. They acted. And they trusted in you. And so we thank you that we have that picture. We have this example of action and faith and trust. And, uh, of course, we all uh, pray that, uh, that your spirit would work in us to that same end that we would be uh, people who would glorify you by our actions and by our faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.